Welcome to DNA Unlocked, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, which is a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Since the initial sequencing of the human genome almost 20 years ago, researchers have been enticed by an explosion of DNA data. These sequences hold the promise of understanding human biology, transforming drug research and development, and curing diseases. However, the quest to generate insights from human genetics and omics research has been full of twists, turns, and roadblocks. In DNA Unlocked, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the ever-evolving perception of human biology and disease processes, thanks to a growing mountain of genetics and omics data. Through discussions with colleagues and other leading research experts, Deshays unpacks how drug developers decode human genetics to solve some of the most challenging diseases. Sequencing the human genome has unlocked large volumes of data that hold the keys to understanding our complex biology. But identifying the most promising targets for disease treatment is like finding a needle in a haystack. In this episode, I talk to Richard Scheller, Chairman of Research and Development at BridgeBio, a biotech company creating a bridge between genetic research and medicines. Richard, from the earliest stages of his stellar career, used the emerging recombinant DNA technology to identify, clone, and manipulate genes to understand how they work and what they do. Over the years, his focus has shifted to developing medicines using the latest genetic techniques. Together, we explore why scientists are so enamored with genetics and the challenges and potential of using genetics in target and drug discovery. So Richard, you have what is truly a unique career because you've been involved in molecular biology and recombinant DNA technology essentially since the inception of the field about 45 years ago, back to when you were a graduate student. And actually, in the earliest days, you got involved with commercial applications of recombinant DNA technology. So for over four decades, you've been working in the field, both as a fundamental researcher, as well as somebody who touches on practical applications of the technology. And of course, that gives you a tremendous perspective on how things have changed over the past nearly half century. And so give us a 30,000-foot view of what it was like back then when you first got involved compared to what it's like today. When I was a graduate student at Caltech, recombinant DNA was just becoming widely used by essentially anyone who wanted to practice it. And we had uh, some very high expectations for what would happen with recombinant DNA in terms of understanding life sciences and understanding developmental biology, molecular processes, cell biology, and so on. And I think that has largely come true. There's just been an incredible explosion in our fundamental understanding of how cells and how life works at the molecular level. But it also became 
interesting then to think about how recombinant DNA technologies might be used to help people with unmet medical needs and severe diseases. And that also has been incredible. Back at that time, there were no products that resulted from recombinant DNA technologies. And now, I don't even know how many there are, Ray, 50, 100, very large number. And they've added millions of years of life to people in the oncology area, for example, and have uh, really revolutionized the way we do drug discovery, not only in making products, but the ability to use recombinant DNA to make, for example, drug targets in order to study them. So the whole industry has been completely revolutionized by recombinant DNA. The growth in the use of recombinant DNA has gone hand in hand with an increasing application of genetics to understand problems. You've described how we've applied recombinant DNA to making new medicines. We're probably still in the early morning hours of applying human genetics and the drug discovery and development sector. How do you view that playing out? The human genome was sequenced 18 years ago, and many people have said that it's really been a, a disappointment and that the new medicines really haven't come from that. And I fundamentally disagree with that. You know, it does take a while to translate this information into fundamental discoveries that can then be exploited, if you will, to make medicines to help people. But I think the most important thing that's happened in the intervening 18 years is that many human genomes have been sequenced, such that we now know that, for example, you and I differ from each other by about 4 million changes of the 3 billion nucleotides in our genomes, and that those 4 million changes are largely responsible for why we look different from each other. But those 4 million changes also play an important role in determining our susceptibility to various diseases, such that now we've been able to do genome-wide association studies where we look at people with the disease and we look at people without the disease and we find variation that's enriched in people with the disease. Those variants must play some role in the disease because they're statistically significantly increased in the folks with the disease and not the folks without the disease. This has resulted in a large number of insights into uh, the genetic basis of human conditions and allowed scientists to work on targets that we know have a genetic validation for their role in the disease when one works on targets with this kind of data, there's a higher probability that the targets will actually make it all the way through the drug development process and result in medicines. You bring up an interesting point, Richard, when discussing this idea that people with a disease may be enriched for a particular variant or change in their genetic blueprint that underlies the disease. 
Changes in the genetic blueprint, of course, usually do one of two things. They either increase the level or activity of a protein, or they decrease the level or activity of a protein. And these changes may either increase or decrease the risk of disease. The problem that we face in drug discovery, of course, is that we often can't tell whether a genetic variant is increasing or decreasing the function of a gene or protein. If we find that it is decreasing function and thereby increasing the disease risk, we try to increase the function of the gene and hope that change decreases the risk. And that, as you know, is just really hard to do. How does that fact affect how you think about drug discovery and your own research? Yeah, one can often, not always, tell the directionality, if you will, of the change. Does increased activity of the protein give you the disease, or does it give you less chance of getting the disease? That then tells us what type of a drug we need to attempt to invent. Knowing the directionality from the genetics tells you, as you start the drug discovery process, really what the goal of your medicine should be. Make it more active or make it less active. But human genetics is not a panacea. Most of these variants have a very small effect on your susceptibility to the disease. So just because a variant in a protein has an effect on the disease genetically, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good target. And there are relatively few variants that have huge effects. And those are sort of the no-brainer targets. I think 99% of the variants have a very small effect on the disease. There's no real way around doing good old-fashioned in-the-lab biology in order to really understand whether a gene that has a variant is a good drug target. And that, I think, still remains a bottleneck in the drug discovery process. For any given disease, as you point out, you might have a hundred variants that each contribute one percent of heritability to the disease. If you address any one of those variants with a drug, the likelihood that you're going to really move the needle a lot on the disease seems like it might be small. Just to give an example, you would never have a car where the variant is missing a carburetor because then the car simply couldn't function. And so if you had a human with a variant that totally eliminated a gene, that human probably would never be born because the gene has some essential role in, in making a human being. But you can have variants of carburetors where they accumulate a little dried fuel on the carburetor elements that make it underperform. So now your engine doesn't run as smoothly as it should run. You can have a whole spectrum of a defective carburetor where your engine can still run. With human genes, it should be the same. You can have a spectrum of variants. And so the variants you see in the population don't necessarily inform you as to what the impact might be of drastically changing the activity of that gene. What we need to do when we find a variant is to understand it. Sometimes it's easy. 
if it's the second amino acid and it is a variant that gives you a stop codon, you're pretty sure that you don't have the protein at all. If it's a variant somewhere in the middle of the gene and it changes the amino acid to something, it might have a big effect on the function of the protein. It might have a little effect. It might have no effect. So that's why we need to then go back into the lab and make that variant and understand the biochemical function of that variant on the activity of the protein. But it's even more complicated because most of the variation that underlies disease, I think nine out of 10 human geneticists would agree, aren't in the protein coding regions. They're in regions that affect other aspects of gene expression, RNA splicing, etc. But many times they're in regions of the genome that we don't know anything about. They must be important somehow. And this type of research then gives us insight into the overall functioning of the genome itself, where there's still a lot of mysteries. By now, there's probably a little bit more than a million whole genome or whole exome sequences. How much do you think we need to fully enable ourselves to benefit from the potential of human genetics and genomics and other omics? Is a million enough? Do we need 10 million? Do we need 100 million? What do you think is going to really drive this field forward? I think much more sequencing is necessary, and the most interesting sequencing will come from different populations. For now, we probably have enough DNA sequence information from people like me and you, uh, that is, people of European descent. And the most interesting sequences that I'm seeing coming out are of people, for example, of African descent. Africans differ from each other and the rest of us by about 5 million differences, not 4 million. So most of the variation in human populations is in Africa. If you think about it, a small number of Africans came out of Africa up into Europe. Uh, you and I are descendants of those folks. There was a bottleneck there. So you're able to see a variant in Europeans is present at 0.0001%. So it's really very difficult to work with because you don't have very many people with that variant. But in some populations, that allele frequency could be present at, say, 0.1%. By looking at a relatively few number of genomes, you could understand the effect of that variant on human traits. You know, you touched early on saying that there's all this promise, but I think there's a general realization that the promise is still not realized fully, that we're in the early morning hours. Would you view the total number of available sequences as being the principal limitation for application of genetics and omics to drug discovery and development? Where should we be putting our greatest effort right now? I think more genetic data will be extremely interesting. 
But then, you know, we see a lot of variants where we just don't know. And those variants have an effect on humans, but we don't know how or why. And I think that that is also a bottleneck. But in the lab, slogging it out, molecular biology, cell biology, biochemistry that needs to be done. The techniques have gotten incredibly powerful over the last decades. That can still be a long, hard slog. There's different models for how genomic information is collected. There's the genomics companies that sequence DNA of consumers to try to deduce their heredity, for example. There are massive government projects like UK Biobank, and there are private companies in the biopharmaceutical industry that are doing this on their own. How do you see that evolving? Do you see that ecosystem continuing, or do you see one of those threads taking over? How do you envision to get from a million sequences to maybe a hundred million sequences? There's no right or wrong way to do this. And I think all of the efforts that you mentioned will contribute. The great thing about consumer genetics is that consumers learn about their DNA. So there's education of the general public about genetics and DNA. I think that's a great plus for the consumer side of things. Also, those databases are currently the largest databases uh, with uh, way over 10 million people uh, in the database. But the ability to collect uh, phenotypic information there is largely self-reported. We don't have blood levels. We don't have x-ray information. We don't have phenotypic information that we would like, which comes from projects like the UK Biobank, where the medical records of people are combined with the genetics. So I think it's the combination in the long run of one's whole life's medical record along with a genome sequence that will eventually come together to provide the deepest insight into genetics. And that is still in its infancy. Hopefully, 20 years from now, we'll have 100 million genome sequences of people that are deeply phenotyped and this will be somewhere in a big database that everybody can use. Implicit in our discussion has been that the genetic data will be applied to the identification of targets and identifying which proteins should we either be dialing up or dialing down based on insights from genetics. But there are other ways that one could potentially apply human data. For example, one could apply it to identify patients that would benefit the most from a given medication. Do you think discovery of targets is the most important application? Do you see these other applications being as important or potentially even eclipsing target discovery. I'd be interested to hear your take on, on sort of the full span of application of human genetics and omics to drug discovery and development. 
at least for the work that I've done over the last 20 years, everything sort of starts with the target. But um, these other applications, I'm sure, are at least as important and in the long run may eclipse the target discovery aspect. We know that what we used to think of as breast cancer is not just one disease. It's several different diseases with different genetic origins. And the way you treat one type of breast cancer is completely different than the way you treat a different type of breast cancer. And if you treated HER2 positive breast cancer with the medicines that are used to treat ERPR positive breast cancer, it would have no effect and vice versa. So only by determining the precise genetic origin of the disease do we know how to treat the disease. And I believe this is the case with essentially every human disease. I think there's a very important role for genetics to play in clinical trials. The average time that it will take for a patient in the trial to develop the disease is five years. Your trial might have to go on for eight years, or you might need to enroll 10,000 people. If you could find a subset of people where the disease onset would be two years, you could run a much shorter clinical trial, or you could run a clinical trial with fewer patients. And this would be extremely important in helping with the cost of drug development and the amount of time that it takes to develop a drug. So these kinds of studies are also currently underway. People are coming up now, not with just single genes that result in an increased probability of having the disease, but with these large genetic genome-wide association studies, people are putting together polygenic risk scores. If you have 15 variants, not just one, then you have increased probability of developing the disease or developing the disease at a more rapid time course. Richard, you touch on what I think is a really important issue there, which is the difference between disease incidence and disease progression. And the nature of most of the databases that exist now, they're really single snapshots of a person's genetics, which of course are unchanging, and a person's uh, health status at a given point in time. So you'll know that this person has had heart failure and this is their genome sequence. Perhaps a more important question is not whether or not you have heart failure, but how rapidly your heart failure is progressing. And presumably that's under genetic control as well, but it's also impacted by environmental factors. How do you see human genetics and omics writ large contributing to that problem? Well, it comes back to the phenotypic data collection and really combining that genetic data with one's life history of events, including disease, and then further combining that with a knowledge of environmental history as well. Some people would probably have a more severe asthma 
reaction to poor air quality than others. It's the interaction of the environment with genetics that really results in the overall condition. That's also a reason for collecting more genomes and understanding those genomes geographically where we have different environmental conditions so that we can begin to tease out the interactions of genomes and environment. But that's extremely complicated with a lot of variables coming into play such that deriving statistical significance from these types of studies can only be done with huge amounts of data, which is why I hope we keep collecting more. The status of the proteins that are present at any given time is arguably a more immediate snapshot of your health condition and your near-term risk. And those proteins can be influenced by environmental factors. How do you see the field of, of protein analysis developing? Do you see that stepping up to the same level of importance as human uh, genomes in terms of understanding someone's health trajectory and response to a medicine? I think that it's the combination of the data sets that are now available. The protein data sets, there's data sets on metabolomics, there's data sets on glycosylation patterns of your proteins, uh, there's data sets on your chromatin status, your epigenetic data sets, and many of these are now coming online. The amount of data is rivaling the genetic data that, that we have. And the really fun thing is to try and put together a coherent story based on the combination of data sets. So it may be, for example, you have a variant, but you don't understand what the variant does. But when you look at the proteomic data, you see that the protein is there there's just much less of it or much more of it. So maybe it's that genetic change that resulted in that proteomic variation that you see. Bioinformatics is utilizing all of the different sources of data to come together with a coherent picture of an individual coming up with statistically significant and relevant observations can be extremely difficult. You can find anything you want. The question is, is it significant? Is it real? And that just requires a lot of data. So Richard, I'm going to bring you full circle. During your career, you've borne witness to just spectacular advances in how we apply our knowledge of DNA to understanding human biology and taking that understanding and using it to develop medicines to benefit patients. On the curve of innovation versus time, do you think then the next 50 years will see consolidation of the tremendous innovations that have happened in the past 50? Or do you think the curve will continue to rise or accelerate and we'll see a greater increase in the pace of innovation in the next 50 years? I've also thought about that quite a bit. My tendency would be to say that things are slowing down. But if I look 
back over my career, I've always underestimated the pace of innovation. So I think there's a difference between my somewhat conservative, some would even say pessimistic personality versus what I've actually witnessed. An accelerating pace of innovation is what I expect. We do have very serious challenges in front of us. The advances that have been made have been relatively minor compared to what we would hope for. So we have a lot of work to do in the future, but I'm really optimistic that we will continue to make ever-increasing advances and that there's a tremendous, the exciting science of human biology and treating disease in the future. Thank you, Richard. I think this has really been a tremendous conversation. It's really been just a pleasure talking to you. Look forward to catching up with you again as soon as possible. Thank you. Been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to DNA Unlocked. And thanks again to Richard Scheller, Chairman of Research and Development at Bridge Bio. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the DNA Unlocked Q&A webinar discussion of September 1st. Register for this event at the link provided in the episode notes. With so much genomics data in hand, scientists can now tap into previously unknown biological mechanisms to develop new drugs. In the next episode of DNA Unlocked, we'll talk with Septarsi Haldar, Vice President of Cardiometabolic Research at Amgen, about how researchers use the information in our genes to fill in the gaps of our knowledge of human biology and what that means for drug discovery. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to The Scientist's Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.